0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy.
1: Canis Albinus. Makalua.
2: The main Team. Mega Bears fan. Hello and
3: welcome to Polycast episode 383. I'm the main Team, and as usual, I'm joined by Canis Albinus.
0: Got cold again. Makalua. Does anybody remember what the sun looks like? Because I haven't seen it in a few days.
2: And Mega Bears fan. I promise I will release that Portugal strategy guide someday. I'm working on it.
3: (laughs) It is uh, neither cold nor cloud covered where I am. So it is interesting to hear.
2: Yeah, even here in Vegas, it went from being in like the 60s to being almost 90 like overnight. It was uh, quite (sighs) a shock to the system. Yeah. The
1: sun is shining here. It's just cold. Oh, so y'all sent all your clouds to me. Thanks. Oh, it was cloudy yesterday.
2: Mackie's probably still, like, afraid to see any clouds at all after uh, what happened to Texas earlier in, what was that, January, February?
0: February, Uh. but yeah, you know, clouds for one day. Okay, clouds for multiple days in a row, guys. What's the weather doing again?
2: Here we are in May now. Today is uh, May first, and the final New Frontiers, the final planned anyway, New Frontiers uh, patch for Civ Six uh, in 2021 has been released. The April update is live, and I uh, think we've all had uh, what now a week or so to uh, play around with it. Um, and. Uh, yeah, we have some first impressions. I don't know uh, how much you all got to play. I had a Portugal game in progress when it released, so I did not get around to play with the fancy new Trebuchets yet, although I did get to play with some of the line infantry because uh, at the point of the game I was in, Trebuchets were already obsolete, and I was upgrading into bombards, like, right as the uh, DLC hit. So didn't get to play with the trebuchets yet but uh, did get to kill some stuff with line infantry did uh any of you get to play with the fancy new trebuchets
1: I didn't play with the trebuchets I played with the men at arms and they are annoying oh they seem very underpowered to me
2: because hmm.
1: they just, they just take it on the chin by our ar- but with archers they just sort of like, like snap snap oh you're done
3: the at arms strength again so that seems a little odd
1: that's a good question I don't have the proper list of patch stuff can't i
2: I, I feel like both Civ 5 and Civ 6 just in general had a problem of ranged units being like quite a bit too strong especially with yeah. the ability to uh to focus fire uh Civ 6 maybe not quite so much as Civ 5 because the uh Unit spam in Civ 6 is not quite as much as the unit spam was in Civ uh, 5. So you're not getting focus fired by like four crossbowmen in Civ 6 the way uh, you would commonly be getting focus fired in uh, Civ 5. But even in Civ 5, like it would take three or four attacks from a crossbowman to kill most contemporary units, unless that crossbowman was just like crazy well. Uh, promoted and had other buffs and stuff going on. But uh, Civ six, it is not uncommon to see, like, a crossbowman with just a couple of promotions, one hitting some units, or at the very least, like, you know, two bombardments is enough to kill most contemporary units.
3: Yeah, general and upgrades make such a big difference.
2: Yeah, and if you're still running oligarchy, I mean, like, yeah, you're talking about a unit that's got, like, what, like a plus uh, 17... On it, which is a pretty substantial combat bonus, but you know, still, I I always have kind of seen uh, crossbows and and ranged units in this time period in the game as being more of like defensive units, uh, but uh, yeah, they they are just really strong and just have always been really strong.
3: They're a weird to implement in sieve, but there's only so much you can do with the level of abstraction, right? Like, archers mattered a lot historically on both attacking and defending armies, uh, although they were pretty trash against armor.
2: Right, but they were still always in, like, a support role. You know, they weren't your your main frontline <laughs> force in, in real True. life. Uh, if you didn't have infantry, you know, uh, you would those archers would get routed, like... It, it pretty quickly. Yeah,
3: yeah, it'd be pretty trivial to deal with just archers. Yes,
2: and uh, Civ Five and Civ Six, I feel, just haven't quite uh, done that justice yet. Maybe Civ Seven you they'll can do better. While still implementing the
3: archers, because like the scale of a tile on the game is ridiculous, so it's already silly that they're shooting at such long distances. But you're attacking from one tile to the next, and units can't occupy the same tile if they're hostile. So there's no good way. Uh, to implement archers in any other fashion that wouldn't just force them into being inferior melee units.
2: Yeah, without just basically increasing the scale of the game and just having uh, each tile represent a smaller distance. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, we've said many times before, we all, I think, would... Uh, I think we've all agreed in the past that would be a, a good thing overall for the game if the uh, there were just more tiles on the map.
3: But even then, like other games, like from Total War to Bannerlord, also model archers in a way where they are way more effective against uh, some unit types than they would have been historically.
2: Yeah, but they do at least tend to get down the the reality that uh, if you don't have frontline melee infantry, those range units just get routed pretty quickly by you know cavalry or uh, infantry charges.
3: Well, to be fair, in So Six if you just like walk your archers close enough, that melee can hit them. They'll die pretty fast, uh, especially the mounted units, which can move into the range and hit them from further away. Like That is a thing in Civ Six. And it is much easier uh, to get strength promotions onto units that fight in melee than archers, which skews it even more. If you have a promoted melee or horseman running into a promoted archer, the archer's promotions aren't going to do much for it. So it,
2: it tends to really rough them up. I think the inclusion of the men-at-arms will probably definitely help in that regard, because if I'm remembering correctly, the crossbowman has, like, the same melee defense strength as a swordsman, I think, or, like, pretty darn close if it's not the same. So having a, a contemporary unit that has just a higher melee strength when attacking the crossbowman, I think is definitely going to make a really big difference in that regard. Uh, I mean, even it's if,
3: useful just to have a bridge unit too. Like <laughs> if they'll it, you know, whenever you think about them, they're going to perform better than Swordsman will, so there's that.
2: Yeah, that's been a problem with Civ Six for its its entire life cycle so far was just how sparse the uh unit tree has been with uh with a lot of the, the unit classes. And it's kind of a shame that it took until like the very last patch on the last planned DLC to uh address that. I mean I, I'm pretty I remember people asking for like a Maceman or Axeman, you know, medieval melee unit like pretty much since the game came out.
0: And the trebuchets too, we've been asking for that because there was that gap with siege units.
2: The guys we had pikes. That's right, Pikemen. Pikemen are best unit in game. <laughs> mm-hmm. But let's see, what else came in uh in the fancy new patch? Uh, We got several new maps, uh, including a Mediterranean large map and a huge Earth map, which I am still amazed was not already in the game, Uh, along with a true start location version of both of those. So if you like those historical scenario maps, there's a couple new ones in this patch. And then I I think we talked quite a bit last episode about some of the new, uh, balance tweaks for some of the civilizations, but not all of the civilizations, so I'm going to see if I can just focus on the ones that we did not talk about last time, and if we did, you know, feel free to stop me. Uh, so let's see, so we've got, uh, Aztec, uh, their Tlachtli, uh, building had some culture added to it, uh... Australia now gets a tier 2 start bias for Coast. What was it before? Was it a tier 1 or tier 3? I don't know. I forget. There's
1: no there's no easy way to look that up without finding the specific thread that lists it. Let me see.
2: Yeah, start biases have always been like a, a weird kind of poorly documented element. It, it's not in the Civilopedia. Uh, I rarely ever, if ever, see it listed on the wikis. I think it's, like, actually pretty easily accessible from, like, the game's, like, XML or .ini files, if you are tech-savvy enough to go looking for them. It should really
3: be in the game.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things that really should be documented in the Civilopedia, like, in the, like, description of uh, the civilizations. But for some reason, it is not. Let's see, what else? Looks like the French Chateau has been buffed uh plus one culture for each adjacent wonder is that new didn't already have that and plus two. I think it
1: oh, go ahead I think it had something else
2: and plus two gold for being on a river uh which I think is new that does not sound familiar to me uh Germany also had its start bias changed it's now a tier five river start bias I did not know that start biases went up to tier five I thought it was just one two and three. So that's actually Help. news to me as well. Uh, Man, how many civilizations
3: should have a river start bias if we're going by historical r- importance of rivers? It's like most of them.
2: Well, if, if, I mean, everyone should be fresh water. If you're not next to a river, then it should be next to a lake because, you know, every every city needs fresh water. Yeah. I'm
3: just and, saying it's interesting that like Germany specifically gets a river start bias, whereas uh, some other nations don't.
2: Uh, tier one is like the strongest start bias, right? That's like the one where you're pretty much guaranteed to start next to the thing. Okay. That's what I thought. So this is a, a tier five would be a really minor start bias. I I think what they, what they do is the civilizations that start next to like the really like well known, uh, rivers. I think they, those are the ones that get the, the start biases. So, you know, you've got, uh, you know, Berlin, I think being on the Rhine, uh, you Berlin know, which is... is not on the Rhine. <laughs> isn't it close to it, though? No.
1: Oh, what city am I thinking of that's... Uh, on the Rhine? I don't know exactly, but Paris is on the Seine.
2: Oh, uh, actually, the, the Berlin isn't even the capital for Germany in this game, is it? It's Aachen, and I have no idea where Aachen is. or if That's, that's even closer. A, is that even a modern sure.
1: city? Aachen is a city. Aachen might be on the Rhine.
2: It's a lot closer
3: to the Rhine than Berlin, at least.
1: (laughs) Aachen is a spa city near the border with with uh, Germany. uh, uh,
2: Shoot. Well, Uh, clearly, I need to brush up on my European uh, geography.
1: (laughs) What do they call that dang country now? Fake France, (laughs) Belgium—that's what it's called.
0: (laughs) Fake France. (laughs) Oh, that's going to start a riot.
2: And there went all our Belgian listeners. <laughs> right back to Horse of Iron for references.
0: Akin is not on a river, so that's why they've moved the start bias down.
2: Okay, makes sense. Uh, then let's see, we have Greece. Uh, Thermopylae added plus one combat strength for every military policy slotted. Uh, Thermopylae, I assume, is the Greek national ability? Thermopylae,
1: yes. That's
2: pretty good. Which I think used to be uh, one free wildcard slot. So I'm assuming they still have the free wildcard slot, and then you also get a bonus for each military policy slotted. So that will definitely be very nice for Gorgo, who also gets uh, combat bonuses. And that
3: scales up as you
2: get better government, because you can slot
3: a lot of military eventually.
2: Well, and it also does uh, create uh, kind of a more unique flavoring for greece which is to focus on military governments that are going to have more of those policy slots yeah like usual
0: mr honor every game over there
2: (laughs) play play every civilization japan had its uh start bias changed to a tier three coastal bias again i don't recall what it was originally I do wish that um that Civ Six had start biases for like starting on islands or island chains, because that would be really nice for countries like Japan and England and Indonesia to have. One tile
3: islands for sure.
2: Well, definitely just not that a... bad, but most of the maps in Civ Six at least are pretty good at like generating those, you know, like medium sized, like mini continents. No, just for Dan. You get the one tile island, whatever his back address is or
3: IP or whatever they need to trace him they just give him specifically one Island and start bias.
0: It's a special quick patch. <laughs>
2: uh, I think we talked about Khmer last time, so mm-hmm. move on to Congo uh which has now relics artifacts and sculptures now give an additional faith and uh removed great writers from the additional great people points. Huh. I wonder why they removed great writers.
1: Because great writers are already plentiful.
2: Yeah. Having more does, doesn't I guess, help. I guess that's true. Did we talk about Korea last time? I don't think no. so. So Korea had the uh, Three Kingdoms bonus is now buffed so that mines get plus one science for each adjacent Sewan district and farms receive plus one food. What the heck did it used to be? That sounds like that was what the bonus always was. I think
1: uh they
2: got nothing huh okay uh
1: because those those um just give adjacency bonus man my brain is not working today
2: oh is that what it was was it just adjacency bonuses for those uh improvements and not actual yield bonuses okay see we talked about mapuche last time so maya maya's got a Few updates. Uh, farms now get plus one production for every adjacent observatory. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's mighty spiffy. Um, and the uh, other bonus—I forget which one was the leader bonus and which one was the civ bonus. So their other bonus is now non-capital cities with six within six hexes get a free builder when the city is founded. I assume that stacks cool. with the. Uh, government plaza building that has the same <laughs> bonus so that would be two free builders if you've got that going uh, which is mighty nice especially if you're running serfdom and getting two free charges from each of them yeah that is. but by
1: a- the time serfdom comes around you should have your city ring already
2: filled out yeah that that is true so uh, and this is going to be limited to only cities that are within the six hexes from the uh from the capital, which means, uh, you know, you're only going to get to use this so many times in the game, but that does mean your territory is going to be very well improved early in the game, and you can focus all of your production on, like, building things like military units and uh, infrastructure instead of needing to spend a lot of it to build builders. And then let's see, their start bias also changed, and this is like a whole paragraph Basically so. what
1: they did was they made everything that is a good start, so all grass and plains are now Tier 1 start biases. All the plantation luxuries are Tier 2. All the Tier 2 luxuries not employed by plantations are removed. All terrains, except for coast, are Tier 3. And they did this to prevent Maya from spawning on the coast.
2: In order to, I guess, give you more land space in which to actually settle uh, cities within six tiles of your uh, capital. Yes. Instead of being ocean-locked on one side, and if you're really unlucky, being mountain-locked on the other side. And I assume it also increases the likelihood of Maya uh, starting next to those plantation luxuries that they also get lots of bonuses from. So that will also help. Uh, Did we talk about Mongolia last time? Because they also no. got a uh, buff. They now get additional XP for Siege units. Uh, I think it's just
1: the Ordu gives Siege units XP now, as opposed to when, before when it didn't.
2: Oh, right. The Ordu is their uh, unique district or building. Right? I believe so. It's a nice nod to history. So I assume when it says gives XP to Siege units, it's a boost towards earning XP or like they just start with the free promotion or just start with XP, but it's not enough XP to take a promotion. I'm not quite clear exactly what that means. It's probably
3: the same bonus it gives to the other units. It also goes to Siege units would be my guess. Okay. But I admit that is just a guess.
2: Let's see. Netherlands got uh, domestic trade routes provide plus two loyalty, which used to be plus one. So that was buffed. Uh, Netherlands cities will be able to stay nice and loyal. And trade routes sent or received from a foreign civilization grant two culture to the Netherlands instead of just one culture. So nice little trade route buffs for Netherlands. Uh, Nubia has been nerfed from 50% towards ranged units to just 30%, uh, but the Nubian Pyramid was increased to plus two faith and plus two food, so their deserts will at least sustain their own population when you build Nubian Pyramid on it. It's always nice to be able to feed your population. Man, this is a lot of civs got updates, huh? Ottomans uh, get an additional governor title when gunpowder is unlocked, and their knighter, they now get a tier 5 start bias towards knighter. I don't know if they had a start bias towards knighter previously. I don't think so. Persia uh, had their appeal bonus reduced from 2 to 1 for the Paradeza, which I think was their unique district. Yep. And I probably butchered the pronunciation of that. And Poland now uh, was updated so that taking territory from a foreign city with a culture bomb converts that city to the majority religion. Uh, It used to be the religion founded by Poland. So that's the, I assume they mean the foreign city gets converted to the majority city of the Polish city that culture bombed.
1: Or the majority city, or majority religion of of Poland.
2: Yeah, that's a little unclear, whether it's the majority religion of the city or of Poland. It would be nice if it were the uh, uh, founded religion, because that would make it a nice way to counteract someone who's uh, uh, converting all your cities. But it does definitely make sense that it would be the majority religion of that city. So nice little religion bonus for culture bombing. I think the the Polish culture bomb was when you built an encampment, right? Or a fort. Yeah, uh, it's or was when it f- you I think it's uh a district. I wanna say Let me look. I wanna say it was either the encampment or the fort.
1: Oh what the heck am I doing? I'm looking for Polish under
2: under the L's. <laughs> And while Canis is doing that, we'll uh, go ahead and move on and come back to that later. Uh, Russia got uh, a little bit of a nerf in that the number of free tiles they get for founding new cities is now five instead of eight. And uh, the Lavra now does not get free great writer points. I guess you have to wait until you build a shrine. And uh, great artists wait until you get a temple. And great musicians wait until you build a tier three worship building. Huh, interesting. Culture, well,
1: culture for- bombs for, Port- for po- Poland come from encampments and
2: forts. Oh, it was both. Okay.
0: And I was going to say, I'm glad for the thing about the reducing the number of free tiles that Russia gets. Because they get kind of ridiculously spammy. because they, They'll just start building cities, and the next thing you know, their borders are on your borders, and you're like, but, but.
2: Yeah, Russia uh, definitely did get lots and lots and lots of tiles. Eight was probably ex- a bit excessive. So no complaints there from me. Uh, although, it, to be fair, if they are building in, like, tundra and ice, uh, you know, having you know, having all that uh, extra tiles was definitely helpful, because it increased the likelihood you'd be able to work some tiles when you founded the city. So I, I kind of feel like maybe what they should have done is made the bonus only give you the more tiles like in, like, tundra and ice, and maybe not mm. in uh, grasslands and plains. But, uh, you know, whatever. That, that's... Either way. The Scythia had the Kurgan buffed with plus one faith, plus three gold, and then it gets, I guess, an additional faith for each adjacent pasture. And that upgrades to plus two faith with stirrups. And then, of course, it provides tourism after flight, because it provides uh, culture. I think we talked about Spain last time, so I will skip over them. Samaria gets a combat strength bonus to units when they and their ally are at war with a common foe. That also sounds familiar. I'm surprised they didn't already have that. I know they used to get some bonus for fighting with a common foe. Now I forget what it was, though. Oh, was it, uh, I think they shared experience points or something like that. Something like that. So now they also get a combat strength, so they're more likely to kill units and share that experience as well. Uh, Vietnam, uh, the... Uh, Thon uh, district apparently no longer provides a great general point. So that's a bummer for Vietnam. They will no longer get all of the generals. Zulu had their uh, buildings in the Iconda buffed to provide plus two gold and plus one science. Wow, from like all the buildings? Damn. That's good. And then more generally we had the Governor Moksha Uh, The bishop's uh, ability was changed to plus two faith for every specialty district in a city. I don't know if this is replacing the old ability or if it's added to the old ability, which I think was, like, increased religious pressure or something. So this will actually make uh, Moksha much much more appealing for religious play, because that will considerably increase your faith output early in the game. So... Religious players might be, uh, much more tempted to take that governor as opposed to, you know, maybe going for, uh, uh, what's his name? The plus bonus towards chopping guy, I forget his name. Magnus? Yeah.
0: Yeah, you, it might make you want to take Moksha early on if you're planning, I mean, earlier, if you're planning on doing a religious style, or at least having a strong religion, as opposed to just going for Magnus, because we all like to have faster settlers and things like that, and faster chops.
2: Right. And then let's see, there's a couple of uh, upgrade or updates to technology boosts, uh, which actually both look like really good changes uh, that have to do with the new units that are being added. So Siege Tactics, you now get the boost by building two Trebuchets instead of two Bombards, which I think is a very good change because I always had problems getting the uh, boost to Siege Tactics because that tech is, like, contemporary with the tech that unlocks bombards. So I would always have to, like, delay researching siege tactics considerably if I actually wanted to get that uh, that boost, because it took a while to get bombards. And then similarly, replaceable parts has had its boost changed so that it's three line infantry instead of three musket men for the same reason. Although that one was always nope. a lot...
1: Nope, other reason. Line infantry comes after musket
2: Oh, right, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the same reason being that they added a unit that is in between the two. Uh, but yeah, replaceable parts was always a very easy one to get, because I almost always had three musketmen by that point. So now that requires line infantry instead of muskets. There's. I don't think we need to go through all the unit adjustments, because there's
1: a ton of them.
2: Yeah, Most I agree. of them
1: are just uh, switching units that now replace other units to the proper strength to boosted from them and uh reducing a few costs I don't see anything in here that's particularly noteworthy in terms of
2: actual change the only thing that i notice is uh pikeman uh did get a fairly substantial buff which is that their combat strength went up from 41 to 45 whereas most of the other units went up or down like 1 point a couple went up or down two. The uh, pikemen got a four-point buff. Actually, all the anti-tank units did. Yeah, yeah. Pikemen went up four points, and the other ones looked like they all went up five. So, hey, maybe people will build anti-cav units, or maybe not.
1: <laughs> they should have just given them a 100% bonus to count mounted units, and that would have solved all the problems.
2: Right, without having to take a promotion to get that. Yeah. And, and even with the promotion, I think the... Promotion was only plus 50%. If it's an anti-cavalry unit, it should be anti-cavalry. Right. Let's see. Anything else? Uh, did we go over what the like gameplay updates and stuff were going to be last time? Should we go through all these? There were not a
1: lot of things talking about this. They added the cultural domination term.
2: So a nice little UI change is that uh, allied civs will no longer have their cities show up as destinations for espionage at all. I think uh, recently they patched it so that you can't perform missions in allied civ cities, but you can still send your spies there, which uh, was always kind of a pain to wait for them to show up in the city and then realize you can't actually do anything. So now you can't even send them to those cities, which uh, will definitely... F- uh, address that experience, although it does mean that if all you wanted was like visibility, uh, you can't get that. Although, do you automatically get visibility from being allied, or is that only the military alliance that gives free visibility? I forget.
1: I think Mackie is probably the best one to know, because she does the turn cast game.
0: Oh, I'm trying to think, but I think it's just alliance level with visibility I'm not sure that it has anything to do with which type. Uh,
2: Another UI change is that idle governors must now be assigned before you can advance to the next turn, uh, which I guess will help if you are having the problem of forgetting to assign or promote or move your governors. uh, This will probably help with that. Although I assume you can still shift enter to skip it like you can with everything else. The issue was
1: if you had a governor that was eliminated by the spy it would be unable to work for a few turns and then it would come back available, but it wouldn't tell you that it was back available. Right. So you would have them just sitting outside a city forever and not notice.
2: Yeah, it's the same notification in scare quotes as uh, policies, which is just that little tiny exclamation mark over the button in the top left as opposed to being like an actual full-fledged notification that appears, you know, on the left side or next to the... Start icon. Personally, I think that's what they should have done is just made that a notification next to the turn button as opposed to being that little tiny notification in the top left. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, I assume it it is. It's got to show up on the the turn button now if you can't end turn before doing it. Uh, Also, if you, like, reassigned your own governors, you know, like moved a governor into a city that already had a governor, it would kick out the old governor. And that was also something where it would be easy to forget to reassign that other governor. So hopefully both of those will now be much less common.
0: And checking the visibility thing, it used to be anybody with it, but then when they did Rise and Fall and they added the Cree, they made that a Cree exclusive outside of military alliances, and it is the second level of military alliance only. That or the Cree.
2: Okay, so you do not automatically get visibility from alliances unless it is a mm-hmm. level two military alliance. Okay, yeah. so yeah, if you wanted to send a spy to an allied Civ City, just to get visibility. Unfortunately, you can no longer do that, but quite frankly, uh, I can't imagine that that was a very popular use for spies for most players, so probably not losing much there. Any other notable gameplay updates or UI updates that anyone else sees in this list? Because it is quite an extensive list. Cultural domination, we
1: didn't talk about. Cultural domination now gives the following effects, which is once you've. Uh, gained cultural victory points over another country you get plus 4 gold to all your for- to all foreign trade routes that go to these cities spy missions in foreign cities you culturally dominate are 50 faster and your citizens exert 25% more loyalty pressure to those cities
0: so you really 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 don't want to have eleanor get cultural domination over you yeah she already has that loyalty pressure, and you 25% more loyalty pressure. Uh, your cities are going to become her cities real fast.
2: The other uh, notable update that I see uh, f- for me personally is uh, an important update to the Barbarian Clans game mode, which uh, so far is my favorite of the new game modes that were released in the New Frontiers uh, patches, which is that they fixed an issue in which Barbarian camps would stop spawning. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I had noticed that by like the medieval era... There were like no barbarians left in the game uh, previously because uh, they had all turned into city states at that point, and no new outposts were spawning. So it looks like they hopefully fixed that, which means uh, you'll actually see some barbarians later in the game, like when you get your caravels and start exploring the rest of the map and find those isolated little islands, which will now actually have barbs on them.
0: Well, when you play the Terra map, and you're going to come to a whole continent. Well, if the
2: if the I'm uh, hoping that what this means is that even if they've uh, a bunch of barb camps have already turned into city states that new ones will spawn to replace them. They will. Uh, I've played a game. They will. Yeah. So And they you- will until there is no land left in the Arctic that has not got a city state on it. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I mean, like, what's the cap on how many city states can be in the game? Because it seems like... I, th- <laughs> I think it's 23. Dang, yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) I was was hoping there was some kind of cap there because I was thinking if they keep spawning, that's just going to, and they turn to city states, that's going to slow the game down even further.
2: Yeah, I was always assuming that the reason that new outposts weren't spawning was because they had already hit that technical limitation of they were full on city states and they just weren't spanning new outposts because they didn't want to put in special rules for what to do if a barbarian outpost would convert to a city state, but there was no, like, no city states left to convert to. Uh, but I guess that wasn't the case. Apparently they still had plenty of room. So that will be nice to actually send out my caravels and run into some barbarian caravels. Barbarian caravels are nasty. Yeah, they can be. Uh, barbarian
0: it al- navies are a painful stop.
2: It also means that I might actually be inclined to take the combat strength promotion for my Portuguese now instead of just taking the movement bonus on all of them because they'll actually have to defend themselves from, uh, barbarian caravels.
1: I have noticed that without that the NALs don't seem very strong.
2: Yeah, well, they're they're not meant to be a combat unit. They're meant to just build those Fatorias and then upgrade to Ironclads, so... Oh, I just use them to build the Fatorias and then die. But I'm also not an optimal player. Well, they have really... Uh, they have increased visibility, so they work really well. Like, if you're playing as Portugal, you're probably going to have a lot of now because you're probably going to want to build, you know, several Fatoria. Uh, So they they work really well to just park them like along your coast to just give you like crazy amounts of visibility. Like if any enemy fleets are coming after you, you will see them and hopefully still have a turn or two to react before they start, you know, plundering and pillaging your coasts. The game I played as Portugal. Everybody was friendly with it was ridiculous. Yeah, and that's probably going to be a very uh, common thing with when playing as Portugal as well, because, you know, they're so heavily focused on building that uh, peaceful trade empire. Phil might disagree, but uh, I don't know. I also learned don't take the Hermetic Order as Portugal, because you don't get your
1: unique building. You don't? Nope, because you get the, the Alchemical Society instead of the tr- Navigation School.
2: I, huh. Oh. I would think you would have a choice between which one you wanted to build. Nope. Hmm. I wonder if uh, that's something Fraxis will address at some point. Because as I said in the last episode, I have to assume that there will be at least one more patch just to fix issues that came up in the last round of uh, New Frontiers updates. So hopefully there will still be another patch to address bugs and any few remaining balance issues with uh, all of the you know, game modes and stuff. It but,
1: seems like they have been very careful to say last update of the season.
2: Yeah, So, and who knows, maybe there's even going to still be a, a New Frontier season two, and maybe we'll be doing this uh, for another year.
1: Yeah, actually, that makes a really good segue,
2: but I don't know if that's actually what our next topic is. Well, then uh, let's talk about, I guess, the last uh, and, of course, most important update. In uh, the April patch, Canis.
1: You mean the zero out of ten would not do again update that made me very mad? Everybody was all cooing and fawning about how you can pet the dog. Well, you can't pet the cat, which means it's automatically a fail in the book.
0: Should have been pet the scout animal. Well, it,
1: would be a, it wouldn't be such a big deal if they hadn't obviously been aware that petting the cat would have been a thing because they disabled the pet the dog button when you use the Scout
2: the cat. So they knew this was a problem and they didn't care. So for, for the record, what uh, Canis is talking about is there was an official like skin for the Scout that was released by Firaxis. Uh, I forget when it was released by Firaxis, but it replaced the dog model on the Scout with a cat model. And uh, apparently you cannot pet the cat. Nope. If you try to click the pet the
1: dog button, when you have the cat icon or the cat scout, it says you cannot pet the cat. And is grayed out. Is grayed out. And it makes
2: me very mad. Well, clearly what you need to do, Canis, is you need to start a new Twitter account uh, called Can You Pet the Cat? and That's too uh, much work. <laughs> that will maybe get Firaxis <laughs> to uh, update that. See, it seems like a really
1: bad thing for them to have omitted because cats are a lot more popular than dogs, especially on the Internet. That is true. Cats are much
0: more memeable. Is, they had to write an extra code to disable the button. I was like, you yeah. couldn't have just made it pet whatever scout and you got maybe somebody makes a mod that turns the cats into tigers and you could pet the tiger
2: well to to be fair to that point Mackie, uh writing like one line of code to do a little if check on whether that particular mod is enabled is a lot easier than you know all of the animation work that would go into uh having an animator animate that for the alternate skin so it, it isn't You know, quite as complicated as, as you made it out to be. But I will say that since that cat skin was an official first party, uh, like mod update thing from Firaxis and a, a bonus, I think, for signing up for a 2K account, which is something they want you to do. So it's supposed to be a reward. Uh, they, they probably should have, you know, done the extra work to make sure that players who use that reward skin, uh, get to, you know, have that fun little functionality.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think you would have to change the animations much, if at all, just to get you to, to pet the cat. And yeah, I know it's like an if check. It was, you know, wasn't. I don't mean they wrote an extensive list of code to make it check that, but if they took yeah. the time to wait, do one extra line, so you couldn't pet the cat, knowing that a lot of people like cats, it's like, guys, come on! Did an right. anti-cat obviously, person write this code?
1: Obviously, this is a mostly tongue-in-cheek topic, but yes, I uh, let time let us pet the cat. I was upset.
2: And I imagine that uh, any players who were, you know, extensively using the cat skin were probably disappointed to find out they could not pet the cute little kitties. I was. That being said, however, uh, it is a a fun little Easter egg. I don't think it was documented anywhere in their patch notes, so it it was something... tweeted on their Twitter, though. I, I... yeah was it tweeted by them first though or was it tweeted by other players who found it and then because uh, the first tweet I saw for it was actually on the can you pet the dog uh, Twitter and then that's the one they retweeted yeah and then Firaxis or 2k retweeted that so I don't I don't think they had actually announced that at all it it was a, a you know players who found it
1: and now back to our regularly scheduled really good uh, segue Such-
0: back over at Civ Fanatics uh, thread started by Jenya Arikado something who has two Ele- has both Eleanor's mm-hmm. as their little avatar there speculated that the next Civ game would most likely be a fantasy game this is based on four, four out of six of the season pass mods were fantasy stuff because they think they're wanting to tenderize their, that was their word six players into the idea, because they had the Apocalypse mode with the Soothsayers, there was the Secret Societies mode with the Vampires, Mages, Illuminati, and Cthulhu cultists, Legendary Mythical Heroes, and a zombie mode. And there was some sort of Atlantis hit. Uh, hit. Hit.
1: On the two, on the True Start location <clears throat> Earth map icon, mm-hmm. there is a island in the Mediterranean that does not fit the world map.
0: And that's and I it's pointing out just a little bit further down the thread that the canceled Sivra of 2 had some f- fantasy stuff ideas that they had developed but didn't get to use in a game. So this is another way of them getting to use those again, but also getting, I guess, to test if players like it or not because I've seen some things they like and some things people are like, eh.
2: Yeah, it's definitely possible, although I would point out that it's not necessarily uh, guaranteed because I recall uh, Firaxis experimenting a lot with uh, some sci-fi concepts in uh, beyond Earth, that could have been uh, translated into Civ Six, but which were not. You know, things like the the mobile cities and stuff like that uh, could potentially have you know been uh, mechanic for you know some of like nomadic civilizations and stuff like that, like Mongolia and Huns hmm. and yeah. things. But they they did not translate that, so it is not necessarily the case. Uh, that they are just experimenting to see what sticks with the potential fantasy game. Although, it could also just be that they decided not to go with any of those Beyond Earth mechanics because Beyond Earth was not very well received. Maybe if more people had played Beyond Earth and it had gotten more positive reviews and had done better financially, then maybe they would have ported more of those uh, interesting ideas into Civ Six. So, who knows? Uh, New Frontiers, I think, has been much better received than Beyond Earth was. So, they might be more inclined to, you know, base future games off of stuff that was in New Frontiers.
0: Yeah, people are also talking about the idea of what if they're going to do a side series along with the main Civ series that's more fantasy-based? You know, or are, are we going to get a Civ, a Civ developer version of, like, Endless Legends or something like that? You know, are they shooting for something like that? Are they... Maybe even for a way to do alternatives to just the mainline Civ. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and I've said several times I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, another IP between Civ six and Civ seven because they'd done that previously with uh, Beyond Earth and uh, uh what they had they did colonization between Civ four mm-hmm. and Civ five. So it, it it would definitely fit in with uh, precedent that uh, they would do something like that. I would be okay with a fantasy game, but I would much
1: prefer a steampunk game because we haven't really had a good turn-based or uh, uh, TBS-style steampunk game other than the Kingdoms of the or the Cloud Emperors of the Cloudy Skies or whatever
2: the heck the thing is. Well, the two the are the Kings was called. The two are not necessarily mutually exclusive either. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and also it could be uh, for for a ex- reaction because. Humankind is on its way. I mean, at some point, and there's been a lot of positive buzz about that and people think that could open open the competition in the RTS genre back up, you know, or not, sorry, turn-based. Because we've had, Civ has been almost the only thing really, except for more niche things for a while. I mean, with the exception of having the Endless Legend, but this is the same people. So, so what was there, the Planet Fault? It was a sci-fi version. Age of Wonders. Yeah, Yeah, Age of
2: Wonders. I was going to say... I can't think Um, of any others off the top of my head, though.
0: Yeah, and Civ has always been more classically historical-based, but if they could even do just a smaller side thing that does something else, that would get more people in, and maybe after people play the fantasy version, maybe they come to the historical version, or steampunk, or sci-fi versions, or whatever versions they come up with.
2: Yeah, and and I've said before, I, I personally actually hope that we do not see an announcement of Civ 7 this year, because uh, there are still a lot of Civs in Civ 6 that I have not played with yet, and uh, it would be nice to have, you know, a couple years to actually, you know, play more of this game uh, before the next one comes out, especially yeah, with uh, with all the New Frontiers stuff. they got to give people some time to play this New Frontiers content before they hopefully announce Civ 7. Yeah, yeah like- I don't think I'm ready for Civ 7, but I think it's coming. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but it would also give them time that they could take new ideas, like a different kind of a setting, but still turn-based, and use the current engine and tools and stuff they've got while they're working on the newer stuff for Civ 7. And that would also give them another platform to try some new ideas that they might want to put into Civ 7.
2: Right, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can definitely experiment with a lot more interesting things in a a fantasy or a sci-fi setting. And uh, who knows, maybe some of it will stick. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
3: <laughs> the uh the iceberg image i am I'm not sure how best to describe this over audio, however, but uh, um. it's a post by Mr. Salt over on uh, Civ six general discussions as a uh, nice image of the tip of the iceberg for Civ six you know starting with things like nuclear Gandhi and uh Babylon is broken and it was down the hole into the memes.
0: Yeah, so there's, there's those, like, multiple tiers, and as you go further down the iceberg, it gets weirder and crazier. I've seen this exact, mag- uh, this same meme, but it was in when a coffee subreddit, because at the top, oh, yeah, I'm trying some different brands, I'm grinding my own, and down here, there's these people with buying all this expensive equipment and using intense little, like, they're measuring it down to the milliliter, how much water they're using, and, how, and weighing their coffee by the gram, and it's like, okay, y'all have lost it. Y'all lost the plot. <sighs>
3: So as you go down, you get things like uh, Atomic Zulu, Zulu theme, and uh, sus uh, civilization. Civilpedia writer hates rock. Uh, call to power was developed under legal threat. Yeah, nice, nice.
0: The new frontiers pass was leaked on purpose.
3: <laughs> I I
1: personally like the every copy of Civilization Six is personalized. That it, is you know, the
3: final final tier.
1: The joke about how. Was it Super Mario 64? One of the developers said that about it. Was that it reacted to how you played, so it played differently. <laughs> but oh. the Atomic Era Zulu theme is pretty hilarious, because it if you type in Atomic into YouTube, the first thing that pops up is Zulu.
3: Nice. Well, the games are starting to go this route a little bit, in that they have algorithms that adjust the experience based on how well the player is doing and whatnot. I, it's a little bit of a race to say they're personalized just yet but who knows give it a couple decades that might be a thing
1: but I really enjoyed later down in the thread where they were talking about oh here's some interesting things that nobody nowadays remembers like how uh, some of the the stuff that happened with the with the Civ 4 version in China was kind of crazy and how the DOS and Windows version of Colonization had entirely different graphics. How there used to be a version of Master of Magic that was named after Civ in Japan.
3: I didn't know some of those.
1: Yeah, there's the dinosaur unit in Civ three. But yeah, this was a, a a nice
3: little joke thread that I enjoyed. Yeah, the uh, the posters really add to it here, for sure. So I'm reading yeah, on about Brian it. Reynolds trivia and such.
0: Yeah, this trivia list is like, wow. Especially what you're talking about with in China, they changed, or the Chinese would change so many things around.
3: <laughs> Nobody is safe from the sus meme.
0: <laughs> if somebody would be, it would be sus in and of itself.
3: Yeah.
1: The worst part is it's auto tuned because the Zulu Atomic Era theme is auto tuned and it's it's my least favorite of them. <laughs>
3: They just need to add more of those horns from Total Oratella to it. No! (laughs) I hate those horns.
0: (laughs) It might might
3: add to the uh, Atomic Era Zulu theme, though. It probably would.
1: But the Atomic Era Zulu theme, it has good music. It's just
3: the auto Yeah. Well, coming soon to you, Polycast, we will all be auto-tuned for all of our speeches for the entire episode.
1: Oh no, not this too!
3: <laughs> that would be hard to listen to for more than a few seconds. I think very
0: being out my ears moment.
3: It's more of like an overwhelming sensation to your cognition of the thing at least in my case it just like i get tired of it and i get tired of it really quickly for certain things like that
1: are we ready for the next topic mm-hmm.
2: Well, something that you probably don't have to go too deep under the water of uh, Civ forums to find out is that the Diplomatic Victory is maybe a little easy to earn. And we have a thread about this on Civ Fanatics titled, Whatever Else Happens, We Need to Talk About Unintentional Diplomatic Victory, uh, which was started by a user called The Civs 6 uh, And this thread is basically saying that uh, Diplomatic Victory is too easy to just kind of trip over uh, when you're trying to go for other victory types, and that this player tends to just earn an accidental diplomatic victory uh, earlier than being able to actually win any of the other victories, uh, which is definitely a legit complaint. Uh, I have similar experiences, and one of the things that... Yeah, uh, I I found that it's really easy to get a a diplomatic victory. Uh, I've never won one by accident, though. Well, I mean, it's uh, for in my case, it's not so much that it's accidental, like in the way that, say, an accidental culture victory is when you're going for a domination victory and you've like just killed all the civilizations that are more powerful. And all that's left is the little ones that you're already culturally dominant over. Uh, it, it's not like accidental in that way, but it just it, it's it gets to the point where it's just so easy to get those last few diplomatic points that it's kind of like, why not go for it? If that makes more sense. Well, okay but that's more of
3: a balancing issue
2: than this yeah uh and the the thing that um the um thread poster points out is that uh in their opinion there's just too many comp- scored competitions that are available too early in the game and that the ai just does not seem to prioritize competing for them and i agree with that wholeheartedly in my experience the um the Diplomatic scored competitions are just way too easily to just blow the AI out of the water uh, in if you put like any effort into it at all. And that's something that I would definitely like to see the AIs be a little bit more competitive with is, you know, recognizing that they're losing those competitions. And if they have any flavoring for diplomatic victory at all, invest in it a little bit more. Uh, The user also says that, you know, yeah, you can turn the diplomatic victory off, but considering that there are actually quite a few civs that are built around, you know, diplomatic favor and winning diplomatic victories, it's, uh, you know, not really an option that they think should be, you know, a go-to option to deal with this problem. And then um, a few posts down, uh, Casper GM, you know, also seconds the idea and points out that there's like no scaling of a uh, diplomatic victory, like points based on the map size or the number of civs in the game. And, uh, that it's a li- way too easy to predict how other civs will vote. And, uh, I remember this was something that spiffing Brit actually did a yeah. whole exploit video on, which was that one where he won the game with coupe of the Maori without ever even founding a city. Uh, because he would just look at the little UI that tells him which civ is going to vote for which things, and he didn't even need that. So in some cases, the UI didn't even show him. He just predicted it and was usually right uh, more often than not, and won a diplomatic victory point just by leeching that one extra point from having you know from voting for the winning uh, proposal. So you know that's something too, where it, it's also just easy to accidentally get a bunch of points just by voting for the things that just happen to be popular. And then Casper GM also says that the statue of Liberty is probably OP. I think the statue of Liberty currently gives four diplomatic victory points, uh, which at the point in the game where it's unlocked could easily be enough to push you over the threshold to winning. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with this, uh, thread that the diplomatic victory is a little bit too easy uh, for the player to win, and that the AI just does not compete for it in a, like, reasonable fashion.
0: Yeah, they don't, they I remember don't start the days. Out, Go ahead. They don't start out early on wanting it. When everybody starts accumulating the victory points a lot easier in the later eras, then they sort of kind of do that, or they at least try to block you from doing it, but yeah. Whereas a human player for that or for cultural has to know what they're doing from the start.
2: Yeah, like, case in point, I was the most recent game that I was playing with Portugal, uh, one of my spies uncovered that uh, uh, Norway is going for a, a diplomatic victory. And they gave me the little, like, little prompt at the top corner of the screen saying as much. And I went into the uh, scored thing thinking, oh, crap, are they close to winning? And uh, no, the leader in diplomatic victory had something like 12 points at that point. We were in, like, the Renaissance or early industrial era or something like that. Norway had four so, uh... Well, your
0: notice was that Norway was trying to accumulate points.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh they weren't doing a very good job <laughs> of going for that diplomatic victory, uh, having <laughs> one-third of as many points as the person who was currently in the lead, who, for all I knew, wasn't even trying <laughs> to get a diplomatic victory. Uh, and then there's other things, too, like, um, things like sending aid and stuff like that. I don't think that gives you diplomatic victory points, uh, on their own but they do give large chunks of diplomatic favor which you can then use for voting and ensuring that the things you want to win in the world congress do win which then does give you points uh but those are also like obnoxiously easy to win uh in in my case i found that just giving like a gift of like two gold per turn to the uh the target civilization is often enough to like guarantee my victory. Like maybe I'll have to dedicate some little city, you know, somewhere that's not doing much to the send aid project just to like make sure that I push myself over the, uh, the threshold for winning. But like I said, it just, it usually does not require that much effort on the player's part to be able to just completely overwhelm the, uh, AIs for winning those competitions. The problem, though, is that I'm really not sure what Firaxis would do to fix this, like, other than making the AIs prioritize winning those competitions more. And, uh, and I kind of go back and forth on, on debating with myself whether I even like the, the actual diplomatic victory mechanic in this game. I, I think that basically just comes down to not being a big fan of how the World Congress works in Civ Six, like, at a fundamental level. I much preferred how the World Congress worked in Civ V, where you actually got to choose the proposals that you wanted to propose instead of just picking between two crappy random ones that you don't care about.
0: Yeah, because that happens in the multiplayer game a lot. Oh, it's the World Congress. Oh, well, we don't need any of this. Especially the ones where they're trying to get you to put, like... Oh, what is it?
3: Find the band of luxury.
0: (laughs) Well, they love that one. No, uh, grievances and things like that. Or put all the trade routes. It's like... And um, what well, this is me with multiplayer, it's a little bit different. You don't necessarily need it sometimes or want that. I less grievances for somebody, or a lot of grievances. It's not going to matter because it's a bunch of humans playing the game. Our grievances aren't measured in uh, numbers,
2: at least not discrete numbers.
0: That's true. It could be on a scale of one to 10, but you know.
2: <laughs> and if you're not playing with any AIs at all, like even the because the game will still, I think, count. Like grievances towards other human players in multiplayer, but if you're not playing with any AIs at all, that like literally just does not matter because the only yeah. thing the grievances do is it uh, d- tells the AI whether or not to support you in a war or to like accuse you of being a warmonger. monger. Like I, I, as well, far as it doesn't even like contribute towards like war wariness or anything like that. As, as far as I know, does it? It contributes to which um d de- which uh, causes bellies.
1: I think I think you have to have certain a certain number of grievances to use certain Casus bellies, but other than that,
2: But even then, probably only like one or two, because most of them, like it's not the number of grievances that matters. It's just whether or not they meet the condition. Like, did they attack your ally? Well, then yes, you get that casus belli. Did they conquer a city state you were suzerain of? Yes, you get that casus belli. Even if you have way more grievances against them for other things, you can still declare that casus belli against them just because they did that one thing.
1: I'm not going to complain about the grievance system because it is leagues better than the than the. Um, warmongering menace world we had before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I, I think we'll all be in agreement there. And again, my, my issues that I was talking about wasn't so much with the grievance mechanic as it was just with the World Congress uh, in general, where it just it feels very unfocused, very unguided throughout most of the game uh, until yeah. you get to the very end, and then you are like basically just voting for victory. But up through then, it just feels like this kind of incidental thing that you just kind of do without really caring all that much about what happens. You know, it's like, oh, I'll just throw my points into it. Who cares? What difference does it make?
1: I'm yeah. definitely in the camp that the Civ Five World Congress was better, but I think they could have improved it with some of the Civ
3: that. stuff.
0: Yeah, I liked being able to choose the proposals and things like that because then you could put in things that made more sense. Like... Everybody's in the middle of like this great global war. Let's have the world fair, guys! What? Yeah, and to
2: Canis's point, that there are very good ideas surrounding the World Congress implementation in Civ 6. Like, I really do like the accumulation of diplomatic favor points, where you, you get those by actually playing the game diplomatically and having friendships and alliances and suzerains with city-states, as opposed to Civ 5, where I think the number of votes you got was largely proportional to population. So, just being a complete warmonger, and conquering a bunch of cities and having a ridiculously high population, you know, playing as undiplomatically as possible was one of the best ways to secure the most contr- diplomatic control over the World Congress. And I like that Civ Six moved that more towards actually playing peacefully and, uh, you know, engaging in trade and stuff like that.
1: In Civ Six, it was based on how many city-states you were allied with.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which... uh Many players joked for it was just an economic victory because one of the best ways to get the city-state alliances was just to pump them full of gold, nope. and not so much to do any diplomacy at all. I think if they combined the Civ Six
1: city-state system and the Civ Five city-state system, it would have been the best city-state system ever. I like the I like the delegates, <laughs> but I also like the quests that the Civ Five ones gave. You yeah. See
3: that as if there's been a whole bunch of other city state systems.
1: <laughs> I think, but what I mean is if you merged them, it would be better than both of the parts.
3: Yes, that I agree with.
2: Well, Civ 4 had barbarian cities, which were kind of city states.
3: Uh, it would be a reach to call them that. The, the closest thing that uh, to Civ 4 <laughs> barbarians would be the free cities of Civ uh, 6 yes. in terms of those cities.
2: But yeah, I, I do think that the the city state quest system worked a lot better in in Civ Five, uh, Civ Six. The the quests are, yeah, again, just they don't they don't feel like it requires the player to be very active in terms of pursuing the quests. Like they're very passive. A lot of them are just oh, get a boost for a tech or a civic, which like oh, I'm going to accidentally trigger anyway, you know. So I definitely agree with Canister. I'd also would like to see multiple quests like, available at the same time so that you have an option of which you want to pursue, or if you really want to focus on being the suzerain of that city-state, you know, you go for all of them.
0: Or even, depending on the difficulty of the quest, if one's a little more difficult, you get two envoys or something like that instead of just the one.
2: Yeah, and maybe even just having like, more mechanics where like, Doing things that are in line with the type of the city-state gives you more points. Like maybe, for instance, like if you have a science city-state, uh, doing things like building campuses or building buildings in the campuses maybe gives you envoy Uh, towards, you know, scientific city-states or just envoys with all the scientific city-states. So that they're actually more likely to be friendly towards the major civilizations that are kind of playing the game in the similar fashion that the city-state favors.
1: Or maybe just not make all of the
2: city-state missions build X or build Y. Right. But yeah, the... Diplomatic victory in the World Congress can definitely be better in Civ Six. I, I definitely hope that uh, that Civ Seven does kind of what you said, Canis, and takes the best ideas from Civ Five and Civ Six and uh, makes something that just works a lot better. Any other thoughts on diplomatic victory and whether it's too easy or too hard or not worth being in the game? I have never accidentally
1: won a, a diplomatic victory, but I have accidentally won a culture victory.
2: Yeah, like I said earlier, I, I think labeling it accidental is is not quite the right word. It's, it's more of just, it, it's, you know, more incidental. Like, oh, I can easily get these last few points. You know, I earned all my previous points through incidental actions without really focusing on diplomatic victory. And now, oh, I just happen to be four or five points away. Like, I can easily just do this instead of having to wait for a science or culture yeah. victory.
0: You're saying the culture on also... science or culture or domination or something like that, but then you still are just accumulating all these points and, oh, I'm three points away from a victory. What?
2: Because the big thing is that the the diplomatic science and culture victory are kind of like the peaceful turtle victories in the game. And of those three, the diplomatic victory is definitely, I think, the easiest one and the one that can be won the earliest.
0: You can win it without building a city, as we found out. So,
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So while while I do think, uh, to Canis' point, it is probably very unlikely for you to just accidentally trip over a diplomatic victory without even having any clue that you were close to winning, it is very easy to just find that you're so close that you might as well just, you know, go for it. And if you have been playing peacefully, you're probably earning crap tons of diplomatic favor, which means it's, again, really easy to just manipulate the World Congress and get those last few points.
1: This has been episode 383 of Polycast. I am Canis Albanus, and I have been joined with our regular co-ho- cohort co-hosts, including Makalua.
0: Who needs definitely more caffeine because brain be slow now?
3: <laughs> the me and team. The real accidental diplomatic victory is when everybody else gives up.
2: And Mega Bears fame. The bears did not have very many draft picks, but man, did they get good ones. Okay, now time to go back
1: and play more Pokemon. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, 6, sound clips, copyright, take 2, Interactive. Copyright the polycast at the polycast.net.